0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Galit, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Hi, Robbie, and thank you so much for inviting me uh, for this conversation. I look forward to it. My name is uh, Galit Nimrod. I'm a professor of communication studies and um, associate uh, member of the Interdisciplinary Center for Aging Research at Ben Gurion University of the Negev in Israel.
0: How did you get interested in aging research?
1: Hmm. Good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I guess I always liked listening to my grandparents' stories and realizing that, you know, they have a lot to teach me as a young person back then, but also growing up um, and becoming aware of the demographic revolution that the entire world is experiencing, and that's, you know, the aging of the world's population. I realized that this is one of the main challenges that humanity is going to face in the 21st century, and I wanted to be part of the minds that think about how to cope with this challenge successfully. So I guess that it was a combination of natural attraction to the topic but also realizing how important it is
0: now when you look at aging research are we just talking about like it's a wide scale like just interactions i know you focus a little bit on technology but like is it about prolonging life as well too for a very short time i was interested in alzheimer's research because i had lost a grandparent to alzheimer's research and it's like trying to understand that a little bit more because like i, I mean i don't know because aging is obviously a process we're all going to be going through but i've also i've also started to be interested in more of the generational gaps between different generations. You know, there's sometimes such a far disconnect and sometimes you can relate so much. Well, you know,
1: looking at aging research in general, it has so many aspects, but generally it can be divided to um, geriatrics and gerontology. Okay. Geriatrics is the part that deals with uh, mainly with human body and medicine whereas gerontology especially social gerontology so there's also biological sociology um um gerontology but the social gerontology is mainly interested in, in how can we make our later years um meaningful and good and how can we age well that's the main question that we ask and and for the past 40 50 years i would say that you know research was divided between what does it mean to age well and how can we age well. And of course, as a gerontologist, I cannot just, you know, look at the entire picture. So my focus within the field is on leisure, media, and technology use and how these aspects of life can contribute to well-being in, in old age.
0: So can you give me a couple of examples? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, I mean just thinking about leisure in general. Okay.
0: Um, I could tell you a bunch of old people down here play pickleball. Like that's a big thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that seems like the not best only leisure that I activity. heard of
1: that. I play pickleball.
0: <laughs> is it fun? I've never played before.
1: <laughs> it's great. It's just fantastic <laughs> game. <laughs> so leisure in general, you know, is, is something that well, let's define leisure first leisure is, first of all, uh, um, made of free time. Okay, We're relating to the time that is free of obligations and the time where we can choose whatever we want to do. Leisure is also an activity, the activities that we do in our free time. And usually these activities are associated with enjoyment. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we choose, really choose to be involved in and we aim to enjoy from leisure, from our leisure activities. Now, as we age, and especially after we retire from work and when our kids are older and leave home and so forth, we have more free time. This does not necessarily mean that we have more leisure, okay? So a huge challenge after retirement is how to take all this time that we have at hand and make it, you know, satisfying, meaningful, healthy, okay? How can we, you know, promote this time? um to achieve uh, significant goals both physical social spiritual and so forth so this is one of the challenges that I was most interested in when I just started my career and I explored the the transition to retirement and what kind of changes lead to better well-being uh, after retirement so this is like one example of the stuff that I did and I still do to some extent but um as the years, you know, uh, passed, I became more and more in, interested in technology, because uh, the past two decades were, you know, revolutionary in terms of the, the, um, both the development of new technologies and their adoption among all ages. But the older cohorts usually were struggling more with uh, such technologies. So I was interested in learning about how they they know about what what and how you know they become aware of these technologies, to what extent they adopt and use them, what constraints successful use, what you know what benefits they use ha- um, can have on their well-being but also what negative impacts uh, technology can have on older people and this is currently one of my main interests. you know i was very much on the positive side for many many years but now i'm also looking at the negative sides like uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the term techno stress which is the stress that is a result from uh, of technology use it's not being Afraid of technology is using technology and having uh, um, negative effects, like, for example, uh, feeling like that you have to refresh your, <laughs> your page all the time and see how many responses you got, okay, or answering on time to your emails and messages, or just the need to be constantly switched on and, and feel like you're missing something if you take a break for a couple of hours and so forth. So techno stress is something that we all suffer from, but I'm, I would say that I'm the first to look at techno stress among older people, because this topic was mainly studied among people who are in the workforce. And only recently we see research that is looking at other um, populations. So this is like. Just an example of the
0: stuff that I do. Is, is this because technology is kind of being forced upon elderly people now? And I'm not saying like you have to do this, like, but that's how the world is now becoming. Everything is becoming more digital. Like doing your bills is a thousand times easier through the internet than having to mail things in or do it maybe an older style way. I didn't notice it until maybe three or four years ago when we really kind of started experiencing a big shift. Like it seemed like I was not using cash anymore. I was using card more and there was a bunch of stuff that was heading more to the digital stuff, paying car insurance online, all these types of things. Then my grandparents started being like, well, this is easier. And now I can get into this. And now that's all they use. And it seems like they were kind of forced into a position to adapt. Because before my grandparents, you would have gave him a cell phone. My grandpa, I think, had a flip phone. And he would never use it. You'd call him all the time. He'd never answer because he just never have it on him. He never cared for it. And then eventually, I started noticing he had it all the time. I'd always see it on him. I was just like, what's going on? And then he started talking about, yeah, I started to learn it. And, you know, um, it's not that bad, you know, I can watch movies, I can do all this other type of stuff. And you just get into a point where it's like, okay, so now he has an iPhone, and now he's able to do apps. And now he's able to kill time when he's waiting for my grandma when she's doing errands or something like that. So I watched this change happen in a population, or at least in a person's experience who I've heard many stories of that seemed like this would never ever be an option or an avenue. So I'm, I'm curious, is the new research because of the forced adaptation, I would say, of technology, or maybe this the fact that this is like now everything is through this technological device now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, as you just noted, it's hard to live nowadays without having digital skills, you know, and it comes into practice in any, any you know, topic, any any, any life sphere. just last week I was sitting with my mother in front of the computer trying to fill out forms for the health insurance you know in order to get a special medicine whatever and we had to down to upload sorry so many forms and it was so complicated and sometimes it you know the system was so unfriendly that I said if I and I'm like you know a a relatively you know digital person 26
0: say 26
1: (laughs) not exactly but you know i I thought how was my mother supposed to know how to do it you know it's really challenging she's 80 something and she's relatively digitally skilled so we have here a disparity between what society expects older people to be and what older people I wouldn't say can, but want to be, because for many of them, you know, things worked out just fine as they were before. So why should we adopt all these technologies, learn all these new skills? And not only that, we learn them, they keep changing all these technologies. So it's not like you learn something and then you're fine. You know, next time you feel the same form, it will be different. And the next time you use your app, it will be upgraded. And it's like an on Going learning process that can be very stressful for all ages of course but also for older people so you know there are pros and there are cons to technology and their pros are many and just think about you know the pandemic period and how people who are digitally skilled were able to function and you know doing their shopping online and and in talking to their family and friends through Zoom and so forth. I mean, they relatively did well compared to those who did not have these skills. So it was even, you know, a means for survival during the pandemic. But then again, we, we must not forget that technology also has, you know, negative impact, and this is something that we should aim at, at least decreasing or minimizing. Uh, in different
0: ways. So some of the dangers that I could possibly think of, and it wouldn't be just a generational thing, it'd probably be more experienced on the elderly populations, but I feel like this is, they're so sophisticated now it's an all generational thing, scams and bots. I mean, before you used to get a phone call, that would be like, hey, you know I need this amount of money and you can go onto this server, but now it's through all the digital I got an email the other day and I swear I thought it was from the actual MBA like where I go and get my license renewed and everything and they're telling me my license had expired and it was it was all spam it wasn't real. They got the whole entire certificate, the actual logo, the stamp and everything that made it look so official where I was like, if I'm an older person and I see that and I'm going to sign up and then I start putting it... as soon as they ask your social security card number, I was like, wait a minute, hold on. This has to be a scam. But is an older person going to know that or are they going to think this is what's going on now with what's and that's one of the negative impacts of how like technology is affecting not only just one generation, but all generations.
1: It's true, and uh, this is exactly what I'm talking about, the negatives, okay? Because as gerontologists, we keep looking at the positives, and this is something that uh, is threatening older adults, um, especially financial well-being, and studies show that they are uh, victims of, you know, phishing and scams more often than younger people. So they are more vulnerable to such scams, as you said. Uh, and so this is another thing that we should be aware of. And as far as I know, especially in the U.S., the, the awareness is so high that uh, some municipalities, like in New York, uh, started to advertise uh, information specifically to older people how to avoid such scams and how to recognize them. So this is like one of the things that we can do, you know, to decrease this the threat and and you know minimize the the disadvantages and and maximize the advantages of technology.
0: Uh, I'm sure there's many negative impacts, but I mean, when it comes to, I guess, the stigma behind talking about negative impacts, I mean, is it's an open field. I've talked to a couple scientists who've researched like communication through technology is good. There's no harm on kids and anything like that. But then it's like, they won't even talk about the negative side of things where I'm like, there's clearly negative side of being exposed to so much information. I'm curious if it's kind of like that with the elderly research, like everything's focused on the positives, or is it just because the research is now being interested in the elderly populations on things as well, too, when it comes to technology. So everything's going to be all the positives rather than the negatives.
1: I I guess it's an evolution, and we see it, uh, you know, in in studies of all populations with children I think it started with looking at the negatives and with time they started to see the positives of you know media use in, in you know in young age and for older adults it was you know with I mean as a field we started looking at the positives. you know how you know social networks can decrease loneliness for example, and how online communities can foster a sense of belonging and and provide support both emotional and and, um, uh, practical uh, assistance in daily life challenges so at first we only looked at the positives and only after a while when we realized okay this is great and we should you know, find a way to, to increase the digital literacy of older people, only then we started to realize that there are also threats. So I guess uh, the two fields, especially the younger and the older <laughs> uh, researcher kind of went through a parallel um, but, you know, process, but in a different direction. But eventually we all need to be more balanced in the way we approach Technology and how it affects well-being, and especially now with all the progress that we see with, you know, robots and AI and whatnot, uh, the more balanced approach is definitely something that should be guiding all of us—the developers, the researchers, but mainly the users. Okay, we should be aware of, of the impacts of technology has on all of us.
0: You. Think that with elderly populations and technology that is actually reducing their lifespan by being on a device depending like because i know so many of them now that are going on to these social apps like facebook and everything like that very political i mean very more than i would ever want to be in my life but their politics are very very strong whether they're trump biden whoever but i noticed this with some of the older populations where i go it's not good to be you know, screaming like I see some people. I've had conversations with some people that get so passionate about something and they'll start screaming and saying all this type of stuff. I'm like, that's not good, especially like if you're in your 90s or if you're 80 years old. And I'm like, you guys are very hyper focused into a specific area, a political part that is on some of these social platforms, which is on Facebook. It gets political sometimes, at least in my feeds. And I I wonder, I'm like, is that good to be stuck inside your house just ranting about politics or yelling about politics? And I don't know. I mean, I don't have you ever researched into that before, but I would consider that techno stress a little bit.
1: (laughs) I love your question. Uh, I, I would say the other way around, you know by using social networks and being involved in such discussions and arguments, you know people uh, remain engaged with life and with the world and with whatever that is happening. And in fact, the, the studies, I mean, we don't have studies about technology use and longevity, but we do have studies about technology use and health and especially cognitive health. And some studies found very interesting um impact of using um for example social networks such as facebook and better cognitive functioning okay and it's a causal effect okay the more they use the better they were functioning or people who play um online games or any type of electronic Soldier. game we can... for example <laughs> yeah we can see that there is a, a positive impact on on you know Um, dimensions such as short-term memory and um, the um, the speed in which people um, are able to, you know, perform tasks. So these are great impacts. So if anything, I would say, I mean, I would, (laughs) if we are to bet on the impact on longevity, I would say that it increases longevity, especially because Many of the media that we use nowadays are social media okay and we know for sure for many years of research that being in, con- in in connection with other people, having a social circle, having friends, having people to talk to, okay whether it's arguing or whatever is something that um, delays uh, death. And and that's like something that has been proved already. So I, I would say that if anything, uh, yeah, th- th- there is a, a positive impact on, on,
0: on longevity. Such as keeping the grandparents in the conversation. A lot of times if they didn't have a cell phone or anything like that, you had to go all the way to their house and depending on most kids moved away from home and got farther away from the state they were in. So that means they're a couple hours away from their parents, maybe sometimes across the country from their parents. Um, or grandparents. So now Facebook keeps them engaged in the conversation. They can like a Facebook photo. They can do something like that. You can message and reach out. I think most of the my communications with my grandparents is now through Facebook Messenger. They have my cell phone, I think, but I think it's just easier for them because they're on it like 24-7. But is it most of the stuff that would be negative compared to elderly people would be stuff like scamming and stuff like that? Or have you been able to find anything else when it comes into just, I would have to think that it would just, the time, a passage of time, probably for them, like if they get sucked into something, because it is addicting and there can be that. Like I know my grandmom used to play the hell out of some casino games on the computer. And I'd be like, yo, you've been doing it since like 4 a.m. And now it's like, it's afternoon, you haven't even made dinner. And I would hate to be like that, but my grandma makes the best food, but it's the casino games for her. That was like, you're not paying attention to what's going on around you right now.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that wasting time and, and time in general, you know, as, as we are all aware that we have limited time on this this planet, I think, and we want to make the most of it. And some older people complain that using technology takes a lot of their time. First, because of what you just described, there is this tendency to be, you know, to forget about time and to be so engaged in an activity that you don't feel like the time has passed. And before you know it, it's evening, and you you even forgot (laughs) to eat dinner—not not not to to mention to make dinner—but also many times the waste of time is uh reflected in trying to figure out how things work how do i upload this file on this whatever so there are two different types of of time wasting however we must remember that technology also saves time okay if you can renew your driver's license through you know filling a very simple form rather than taking your car driving to the whatever the place where you renew your driving license, standing in line, and spend half a day in doing this, this means that in 10 minutes you saved half a day of, of something that is, you know, not very exciting and not very beneficial to your well-being. So, you know, it's a coin with two sides, and and sometimes you save time, sometimes you waste it. And it it's another, it's another skill that we all have to learn how to use technology. In a way that is beneficial and efficient,
0: you know. So, do you find some not only older people? Do you find that some like with older populations that some people are still resistant to the change of technology, even though it is advancing to the point where it's like you have to kind of use it in a sense? I mean, at least to a lot of things now are going through that digital world. So I feel like there's some people that are still probably resistant to it because they had never used it in the past. And plus, like I said, or we said, it's very complicated too. It's not an easy process to learn.
1: Yeah, and, and this is why we see what's called the a the gray digital device, you know, uh, divide. sorry. Um, older people, even those who use technology, okay, uh, they usually have, very basic skills, like they know how to write an email, they know how to search for things on Google, but not much more. And the more sophisticated um, uses is something that they have to learn, or otherwise, they just don't use it, or ask for their children and grandchildren to assist them with some tasks. And this is, by the way, another negative impact, because many times, this can cause Tensions and conflicts within the family, you know, with children losing patience to their parents, telling them, I already showed you how to do that. Why do you ask me this this for the 10th time? So that's another potential negative effect.
0: I never, I, you know, now that you say that, I kind of think back about the number of times I did get a little bit frustrated with like my grandma or grandpa, when they were trying to figure something out. And I'd already explained it multiple times. I was like, what well, are you just not listening? And it's like, no, I, I start to realize it now, just because I've taken a break from it for so long that even sometimes if it's outside of basic email and I'm trying to do it again, I'm like, all right, how does this work again? And it is kind of like a, but it's easier for me to learn the process because I was born with the, well, I, I had the, I was a little bit older than before the internet came out but there was still like a little bit of like um it's easier for me to learn because of my generation which makes you think i mean my generation when we're in our 60s or 70s i mean are we going to be able to function a lot better and learn quicker because of the digital age and everything we've been consumed with already compared to how we can look at this example of older populations learning and their speed of being able to catch up with the times
1: yeah you know there is uh, this metaphor that is being used often of the digital natives and the digital immigrants and your generation is the natives you were born in the land of technology but for most of us who are 50 plus we are immigrants to this country and this means that we have to learn the language and we will probably not speak it as fluently <laughs> as those who are born in that country okay and most probably when you are in your sixties and seventies, your children and grandchildren will be more efficient in the technologies that will exist then than you will. So, this age divide will probably remain as the generations change. Okay, it will just be different technologies that we will be facing then.
0: Now we 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 be talked prepared. About, yeah, we talked about leisure activities. Is it still technically leisure through the artificial? style of things, like casino games. I mean, I don't really consider that leisure. It just seems like it's a little bit mindless, but... I don't know. Like, I mean, I feel like going outside, you know, having actual social interactions is still probably shows way more of a benefit than probably doing it through Zoom. Like I know everyone, Zoom got really big during the pandemic, and it was a great way for grandparents to be able to communicate still with their kids. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that when you look at the actual interaction of being able to see someone and experience that, I think a lot of people picked that up after the pandemic when we could actually see each other again because they realized how much they missed it. But it's a, it's a different feeling, much like if you're having fun outside or going and doing something is a different different experience than being through the social platform or just using digital media in general. I mean, you can play games and do whatever. It's still fun. But is it exactly the same benefit to our minds It gives you that same chemical burst that you need?
1: Yeah, well, if we're talking about social contact, of course. Uh, like the conversations that we have now cannot replace in-person conversation, okay? And there is nothing like spending time with your loved ones in the same space and being able to touch, hug, kiss, whatever. I mean, this is very important. We must remember that uh, technology-mediated communication replaces or complements in-person communication it does not aim to replace this kind of communication but it helps when people are away as you said sometimes grandparents and grandchildren live, you know five hours flight away so it helps keeping in touch and in between the in-person meetings okay and it, it's true for any type of of Relations, whether it is, you know, professional relationships or, or, you know, just friendships, people who live far away and meet, don't meet very often. So it's just something that adds, it it is not supposed it's not supposed to replace. But if we're talking about experiences, other experiences, I mean, there are things that technology can offer us that, that life can't, you know, like I'm thinking about digital games, you know, that are that happen. I don't play those games, you know. But you're
0: talking about virtual reality,
1: like virtual reality or or games that happen in some kind of in imaginary world, you know, out of space, planets, whatever, or in other periods in history. I mean, this is kind of of entertainment, okay. That if I compare it to reading a book or watching a film, which are two activities that I like most, okay. I'm thinking. It's completely different okay i can't compare the two experiences and I, and each experience i mean each activity has its own special uh, experience that it provides so why comparing or choosing if we can enjoy all you know we can play a game and then go and read a book <laughs>
0: Do you think that with finding a lot of the negative impacts of technology, that you can be able to understand the, some of the problems of it and then be able to maybe find ways to prevent it, especially in elderly populations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that for ev- like every I think we first have to understand the problem, what causes the problem, and only then we can suggest solutions. For example, the techno stress that I mentioned earlier, okay? First, we must understand what it is. Now that we understand what it is, we can see who's suffering from techno stress and specifically among older people. I found out that it is the people who don't use technology much, unlike among other uh, younger cohorts, people who are older, people who suffer um, some kind of health issue. Okay. People who come from lower socioeconomic status. So it's a more vulnerable uh, audience that suffers technostress. And if we now understand what the reasons are and who's suffering technostress, we can uh, use existing methods of intervention to reduce technostress among these populations. Okay, so it's it's a process and it works. But yeah, you should first, you must be aware of the problem and understand it.
0: What about elderly populations being more susceptible to taking risks because of technology like I I work in the fitness industry so a lot of big like things that I know about is like the diet industry and how like that's really messed up a lot of people's minds and like what's healthy and what's not and I look at like how many ads do I see on my computer that talk about eat an apple a day and you'll lose 30 pounds and I'm like looking at this and I go well I've watched my grandparents click into things, not knowing that it was spam before, but they start going like it's actual information and running off with it, which is another dangerous thing as well, too. But it could just be, you know, some type of side fact or some type of thing that doesn't make any sense and it's not real. But then they go on and think that this is 100 percent real information. They'll share an article. New thing. Here's the best example. A lost puppy. You see a lot of those on Facebook, A a Lost Dog. Those aren't real. Those are all scams. Some of them are. There's probably some real ones out there. But I have a friend who's older, and he shows, like, I met through the podcast, but he's 70, 75, and he shares those all the time thinking they're real dogs. And I've told him multiple times they're not real. But when you click on the page... It's 100% like it looks like a GoFundMe thing, but if you donate the money, it's not about – that. you can look up the image of that dog and find it on someone else's Facebook. Someone just had taken it, and it's one of those scam things we're talking about. But that's like one of the biggest dangers is like you could run off with something that looks like Biden says this, and then you click it, and then you start sharing it around, and it's all fake. It's not real news or anything like that, which makes it extremely difficult for – elderly people to think of like, is this hundred percent true? Is this real? Should I share this? And then they get their Facebook hacked and then I get a message. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I think we're also skeptical to such frauds and, and you know, fake views and, and, you know, everything. It's not a matter of age. And, you know, sometimes I think that because older internet users are aware of that, sometimes they're even too suspicious you know sometimes when i i contact older people you know for my research they won't answer me because they think this is some kind of scam and you know the first step for me is to convince them that i'm a real person and that i mean well and you know i have to send them links to my academia webpage or whatever to show them that i'm i'm, I'm really interested in talking to them for academic reasons, I don't want their money, and I don't want to harm them. So I mean, it, it, I'm not sure now, like where they stand in terms of you know their views of what can happen to them online. I think they became even too sensitive, maybe.
0: Did you ask them about if they experienced something like a scam that made them feel this way and be so risk adverse, like kind of pushing you back a little bit, even if you're explaining that you're an academic, I have to think they must've had that one interaction in the beginning that really kind of leveled them and be like, I gotta be careful what I look into now. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I I never asked them that directly, but you know, there's enough research about the topic demonstrating that it is an issue uh, that many, many older people did experience some kind of scam that caused or heard about, you know, uh, a scam from their friends and relatives. And and this is why they become so cautious.
0: I'm curious because I didn't know you were like interviewing elderly people. I know for your other book that we we're, we're going to talk about it at some point, but um, about what the technology, do you find that they're willing to share some of the experiences or like negative effects? impacts that are happening to them, I would feel like, I mean, especially maybe it's just my grandparents, but they would be the last person to tell you one of their weaknesses on anything like this. So I don't feel like they'd be open about sharing some of the frustrations that they have with technology, but also you can look at it from the other end. My grandpa complained about a lot of stuff. So he also like, you know, that's a good example. But I'm just curious if they were open to sharing some of their experiences with you about after they let you in the door and were able to want to talk to you about some of this stuff, if they were really open about some of their frustrations or were they really trying to show that, yeah, they can keep up with the the rest of everybody.
1: Yeah, well, you know, they always say that it's if you don't get answers, the problem is with the interviewer, not with the interviewee and yes they shared a lot a lot of frustrations and and you know horror stories about <laughs> things that happened you know with excel that didn't work or whatever i mean yeah uh, the people I, I spoke to during the years were very very open and willing to share um not just about you know technology but other other issues as well people already um agreed to be part of an academic research understand that whatever that they say may be helpful for other people so usually they are very open and and about topics that are way more sensitive than technology use um you know it can be the most painful experiences they had in life like losing a spouse or you know facing some kind of major health issues that is threatening their own life or or even realizing that they're very close to the end of life, people would talk about it, yeah. Because, you know, by talking to a researcher, they leave a legacy in this world and they help others. So I I never, never had any
0: issue um,
1: receiving answers to my questions.
0: Is there ever one area that you wanted to explore that you haven't? Hmm. That's that's an on the spot question. I'm sorry.
1: Yes, I have. Well, I have to think about it. I'll get. I'll get back to you <laughs> about it. Usually, if I'm interested in something, I just go there and study it. You know, whether it's it's just you know, if I'm interested in something, I'll I
0: just I get it. just I explore mean, it, it. That's, that's how I am too. I just, it's, it's interesting because you don't know what you're going to end up coming across, like something that could seem like it would just be very easy and simple, straightforward. And it's necessarily not, it could have a really complex um, thing that could be very, very interesting as well too. I mean, like I said, I've never even thought about looking at internet with older populations before. I mean, I I guess I don't really have a focus on the elderly as much, maybe my generation or just because I'm young or something like that. But it led me to want to know more about your research because you wrote a book about um, where you interviewed people from the 60s, at least the hippie culture back then, which is an interest of mine. But I mean, I think we talked about this off air, but they seem like the ones that would be taking the most risks. I mean, there's always this kind of like, oh, you do stupid things when you're young mentality. And then when you get older, you kind of regret some of the stuff you did when you're young. Uh, I want to talk to you about your book that you wrote. But when it comes to some of the people that you interviewed, I mean, how do you even think about interviewing people from the 60s? I'm so jealous that you did that. I wish I had the opportunity to. (laughs)
1: yeah. I think this was one of the most exciting experiences I had as a researcher. And as I I told you earlier, when I come up with a question, I just go ahead and, and, you know, explore um, the answers. And the story is, uh, well, it started about 10 years ago when I was in, in Amsterdam with my family sitting in a cafe, you know, just, you know, having coffee and you know, doing the people watching that you do in cafes in Europe. And I was looking at the people, you know, going from one side to the other along the canal. And then I saw this older couple that were very beautiful with long white hair. And they were both wearing tie dye and they had beads and wearing sandals. And they just walked and talked to each other. And only after they passed us, I was like, thinking, wow, you were hippies, and they were the real hippies, you know, not the younger hippies, the hipsters that we have now. These were the original hippies that remained hippies, and, and just like you, I thought that the hippies were there in the 60s, early 70s, and then they grew up, became part of the mainstream, and, you know, Kind of treated their old wild days as part of their youth that is no longer there. And when I realized that some hippies were made hippies, I was very, very curious to learn about their aging experience. How do you age as a hippie? Especially because being a hippie back in the 60s meant being young. You know, the hippies used to say, never trust anyone over 30. So how can you be over sixty or over seventy and still consider yourself a hippie and eat and live the hippie lifestyle? So this was a question that was you know uh, the I mean I was I was overwhelmed with questions like you know many many questions about older hippies but I couldn't find anything written about aging hippies only about the counterculture back in the sixties and so one day colleague told me about uh, a community of hippies that still exists in Tennessee and five days later I've never
0: heard of the farm before as soon as I saw your book and and you talked about that I was like I've never even heard of a commune or community of hippies out there i thought everyone either conformed to capitalism or something like that because it is a young lads game i mean fight the power that mentality it's like i don't see anybody who's and i've seen older people like you know not 50 i mean maybe 50 but not 60 or 70 that are out there still like in the streets protesting and doing this whole movement against cops or anything like that and that's where my confusion came and i was like wait there's older hippies i was like i thought everyone just decided like hey i'm gonna you know relax and play bingo. Or something easier. That's what I would be doing. I'd be sitting on a porch drinking a coffee or something.
1: Yeah, so that's what I thought. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about bingo, but you know, I thought that it just became, you know, mainstream Americans and whatever that means. You know, I mean, what what, what exactly is a mainstream? But when I, I heard about this community, I said, "Wow, well, I must go there." Okay, so I traveled to the U.S., went to Tennessee, spent a couple of weeks with these people. And then I realized that they are in very close touch with people who were part of the community and had to live in the early 80s because of financial reasons, not because of any ideological reasons. So not only that I interviewed the people who live in the farm, I also interviewed many people who left the farm later on you know, using Zoom. And so I was able to compare those who allegedly remained hippies and those who left. And actually one of the conclusion that I had um, in my in my study was that, I mean, you can take the hippie out of the commune, but a hippie will always remain a hippie because it's a matter of ideology. And the ideology stays. Even if you cut your hair short and start wearing suits, you still believe in, in love and peace and nonviolence and being kind to each other and being open to experiences and questioning authority and, you know, love, uh, uh, um, sex, drugs and rock and roll and all that stuff. I mean, it's still there and most of the time, big time, and it doesn't matter where you live and what exactly it is that you do for a living. So the outcome of my research was this book that you mentioned that I'll just uh, show it to our
0: cover over there
1: thank you <laughs> so this is the book uh, it's called the Aging of Aquarius is it a great title um it's my husband idea and uh it is it, it was published by Cambridge University Press um and it describes my findings about aging hippies uh, based on this very particular case of, of the farm in Tennessee I, I would say ask for
0: I would ask you what the best interview experience that you heard from one of the hippies, but I, I'm I'm curious if you came across any of them that really didn't like the certain community aspect that came with like – I feel like to be a hippie, you don't have to just dress in the clothes. Like even if you cut your hair and do all that, if you still live by the philosophy of nonviolence and things of that sort, kind of – I wouldn't say being a pacifist, but still – you can take drugs on the side if you want but i also know hippies that never took drugs before never really went with the whole lsd movement which i don't think i think that gets synonymatized with the hippie movement is like oh yeah lsd and all this type of stuff but that's necessarily not true i mean you don't have to have a flower in your hair to be a hippie
1: i i can't agree more you know and and actually one of the chapters in the book uh discusses um, the meaning of being a hippie okay and and I, I asked these people you know uh, many of them talked about being hippie in the past and some of them mentioned you know by just by passing uh, well you know us hippies kind of related to themselves as hippies but many of them didn't even acknowledge being a hippie at the present so I asked them you know do you still consider yourself a hippie and many of them said well, you know, if you ask it this way, yeah, I guess I am, but it's not the first thing I would say about myself, you No, know? and then I asked them, so how can you be a hippie and old, okay, and, and this is where the identity work that they do was revealed, okay, because it's very interesting to see how they perceive what being a hippie means, and just, you know, I'm, I'm summarizing a lot of information into a very short description, but being a hippie has several layers, okay? There is the external layer of the look, you know, the clothes and the hair and, you know, everything should be very natural and all that. No jewellery, no makeup, no nothing. Then comes the more internal layer of the behavior that can or cannot include, you know, using... um they call it dope, okay, uh, anything that can change your um, awareness, um, music, you know, being maybe more liberal about certain issues in life, fighting for justice, and I mean, the behavioral part, and then there is the very internal layer or, or yeah, of, of, of essence, and that's the hippie ideology, Okay. So, sometimes as you grow older, but not necessarily as you grow older, I mean, you don't adopt the look or you adopt some of, you know, elements of the behavior and you don't adopt others. But as long as the essence is there, you can consider yourself a hippie. And because love doesn't age, you can be old. And the hippie, because eventually the essence of being a hippie is believing in love. And so I can tell about myself, you know, as you said, <laughs> it, only after writing this book, I, I could say about myself that I'm a hippie, even though I don't use any drugs. Okay, Not because I'm against it. I'm just afraid of it.
0: I'm with you on that. Some of them are dangerous.
1: And some of them are. Yeah, some of them are dangerous. But, you know, I, I don't think that weed uh, or cannabis in general is, is dangerous to you i mean it depends but it can be also very beneficial to your health and you know mental well being so we can I've talk smoked about pot that. many a
0: times but let me tell you i've had the worst acid like trips from it and i figured out that's actually very it's rare but it's common with certain disorders like adhd and things of that sort you tend to get hypersensitive to certain stimuli like that. So it surprises everyone. Everyone's like, Oh, you should try this, it would help you with their ADHD. I was like, it's actually had the opposite effect. But I've heard horror stories from like my grandpa. Like back in my day, I took so much acid that whenever I crack my back, I get a I get a high again. I'm like, I don't think that's real, but you've scared me from ever bothering to try acid before. So I mean it's it's interesting because I think like I yeah, the drug thing, I mean, I'd have to ask, how many of them like the Grateful Dead? I gotta know, that seems like a very thing that's synonymized with um, just the hippie movement in general.
1: Yeah, music is very central
0: to to
1: the hippie movement. And this is actually one of the things that did not change a bit with time. You know, they are still, all of them, all the people I spoke to, and even just being in the community, I, I realized how central music is to their life. I mean, you know, in every gathering, and um you know special events or or friday potlucks or whatever it's always about singing listening to music they have many many bands that perform in special events and so forth or even if you just walk into someone's house usually there is music in the background and many times you can hear grateful dead but many of them are also open to other types and newer uh music genres so but uh, yeah music is very central many of them listen music and quite a few of them play um some instruments sing and all that
0: so did you find amongst any of the ones that you talked to that any of them had any regrets um maybe not exactly about the whole hippie movement but maybe having a more balanced perspective that tends to come with age um talking with a few people about the counterculture movement an interesting perspective was was from someone who wrote for the chicago sea that i had talked to and he had mentioned that like Now that I look back in hindsight, a lot of the things, yeah, we might have done some outrageous stuff. And now with hindsight, I kind of look back like I think there was faults on both sides from the government side and also from the the counterculture side, which is like, yeah, you, you don't hear a lot about that. I mean... I know it in hindsight, like I'm not going to go try and like uh, stand in front of a cop car or do anything like that because that's like asking to get hit. But also the people that did it were seen as courageous too. So I'm just curious if you came across anyone that had those kind of either balanced perspective or more of a regret on certain things. Maybe that went for the hippie movement or it went against the hippie movement.
1: Uh, it's it's really it's a great question, and I think that um generally, I encountered two types of regrets. one regret that was pretty common was um feeling sorry about the worry that they caused to their parents Ooh. because the parents were not able to understand what the children were going through, and you know, just think about. The parents were, you know, it's the previous generation. For them, the right course for a person is, you know, go to college, get married, get a good job, do all the things that you're supposed to do. And for them to see their children dropping from school or not even attending any school. Uh, living in communes around um, the U.S. and there were many, many thousands of communes, okay, and and wearing those strange clothes and, and using drugs, you know, it was so boring for the parents. So talking to some of the people that are now, you know, in their 70s, they were and their parents are long gone, they just felt very, very sorry for causing all this um, anxiety to their parents. Some of them even told me that before their parents died or even much earlier, you know, they had the conversation with them and they apologized and they said, you know, it was a generation, it was a movement, we were carried with it, but we did not bother to explain ourselves to you too much. So that was one regret that was common. Another regret has to do with the specific community that I studied, the the farm, because unlike most hippies, the farm was very conservative regarding sex and free love was not part of its um, philosophy. So people were not supposed to have sex with one another unless they were willing to commit to each other and, and become a family. So the outcome of that was um, many marriages that were premature and of people that did not fit each other. You know, there was some attraction and they decided to get married and it was too soon and then a wrong decision. Eventually, the number of people who divorced uh, was very, very high. And and families were, you know, formed and then they were broken and formed again, and then sometimes I even had people who were divorced three or four times. And for the children, it was a disaster. And so this is another regret that, um, um, you know, some people expressed, not all, of course, but some people. Uh, also, some of the children had resentment, you know, to the lifestyle that, that their parents had. And there is actually a film uh, about this particular commune uh, called American Commune. Um, that was made by someone who was a daughter of, you know, a couple that didn't fit and then divorced. And and the whole film is about the um, misery of the next generation. Yet I must say here that uh, most of the next generation, the children and the grandchildren I spoke to, were very, very proud of their parents and grandparents and were fairly, mostly um, proud of them for... Forming such an ideal community that lasts to this day and even thrives. So just to balance, you know, the regrets, it, there are also positive aspects there.
0: Did you find with the farm, was that a religious thing of why they had to be committed to each other for this you know, attraction thing or this marriage thing to actually commit like the act of love or whatever they would call it at the time. Cause I would have to think that would be like maybe a value or something that like, that's what, I I mean, that's usually gets lumped in with hippies is like this area of free love and just sex and all this type of stuff. So that's really different if the farm was a lot of like this more conservative of like you need to have a marriage or it means about bringing in a family rather than just the expression of attraction and love and all that.
1: You know, uh it's not a religious thing. I think they were just more hippies than the regular hippies because they were so um against violence that they perceived abortions as as the most violent acts. So they tried to avoid abortions. So that was the main reason for not having free sex. And although, you know, it was the time of the um, when pills that prevent pregnancies what already existed then they were similar to most hippies but even more than other hippies they were all into nature and the natural so you're not supposed to put in your body things that are not natural this is why they were against alcohol they were against smoking regular cigarettes okay and they were against the pill okay because it's not natural so their philosophy was just an extreme extent of the hippie um, philosophy it had nothing to do with religion so that explains the the whole conservatism that I, i just described
0: did you find that some of them found that they might have experienced being taken advantage of um just for their kindness and maybe some of their generosity as well too because not all of it was like violent counterculture stuff a lot of it was like you know growing your own vegetables and kind of bringing people in and showing people a different lifestyle and experience and that type of thing but there are some things i've learned about like the brotherhood of eternal love and a bunch of stuff that started going out there that did have some i wouldn't say violent part to it but there's a little bit more interactions where i could see as like that would be a dangerous situation to necessarily be in um so i'm curious if you had any of uh, the people you interviewed, if anybody mentioned anything about experiencing maybe something that they might have felt uncomfortable in, um, not just with like basic rules, but also just experiences because they're interacting in a, a really different way than probably most of society, at least today, interacts and probably most of society interacted back then, which is this kind of no care, all peace manner lifestyle, which if you give someone the opportunity of your niceness, necessarily, it's not going to work 100% of the time.
1: Yeah and and you know I mean, I mean they were a commune a commune on for 12 years only after 12 years they changed it into a community and to this day they are a community they only share together the land but every family has to provide for itself okay but during the commune days they i mean they were so famous the farm was so famous then that so many people came over and wanted to become part of the community and For them, anyone who has a belly button could join them. But this means that there was no selection. So I heard some stories about people who were not necessarily bad people. You know, some people that were disturbed or mentally challenged or whatever that did cause some, you know... uh, The stories I heard were not very extreme, but there were a couple of stories of, of... uh feelings negative feelings feelings of being taken advantage of also many people who moved there didn't really want to work hard but the commune was based on very very hard work they had to build it from scratch they had to grow their own food build their houses provide education for their children and many many children were born during the 70s because there were young people so there was something that was not balanced, and and they were not very strict with those who didn't work hard. And eventually, this is what co- this is one of the reasons that caused a huge debt to the community. And then they had to change the economic structure from a commune to a community. Um, so yeah, I mean, but you know, there were so many types of hippies back then. Eventually, the hippies that um, Most of the hippies that form the farm could be classified as the visionary hippies, the ones that really wanted to pose an an alternative to mainstream. Uh, Whereas the others were, you know, heads and freaks and plastic hippies and midnight hippies. There were many, many other types of hippies that were not necessarily on that line of of, of, uh, behavior and life. So
0: I got to ask about the alternative.
1: It is a good a good example of hippie community.
0: I got to ask about the hippie, uh, just the variety that's out there. Did you come across anyone that would look at certain hippies like a different way? Like they're not true hippies. Like I honestly, I'd have to ask about also, do they hate that word? Because it sounds so negative now that I kind of like start, like I hear it so many times, maybe it's just the amount of usage of it, but it doesn't sound like a positive. And I know some people might embrace it, but I just feel like, I don't know, hippie just makes you sound like. I don't know, maybe it's society that kind of uses it or it's movies that make you look like a dope stoner that just makes you look like you have no offerment to society, which is not necessarily a good thing, but I don't know. I mean, that's another question we can get to. Hopefully.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The term hip, okay, means being in the know. So at first they kind of lacked the, the term hippie, okay, but Back in the 60s, you know, you know, it started with, I mean, the media were covering the story of the hippie movement very intensely. And it started with, you know, showing young people protesting against the war in Vietnam and all for peace and all that. But gradually, when more and more young people joined the movement, you could see the other types of hippies and the public image of the hippies changed to something that was very negative. Okay. These were people who were just, who just wanted to get high and get laid. So the original hippies at that point really tried to avoid the term hippie. And even the people I spoke with, you know, just a couple of years ago told me, well, no, I don't like the word hippie anymore because of the negative stigma. Um, some of them, you know, when they actually explained that there are two types of hippies that are there are the good hippies and the bad hippies. So if you have to use the term hippie, then it must be clear that we were among the good hippies. Okay. Others said, well, I'm not a hippie. Okay. And they didn't even want to hear the word, and they used the word bitnik and bitniks were actually the, the the movement that came before the hippies during the the 50s, and it was a relatively small group of people, also in California, and San Francisco, that had similar uh, philosophy but very different lifestyle. They were not as playful and you know flamboyant and colorful as and and loud as, as the hippies. But some of the people I spoke to said, "No, no, no, I'm 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 not a hippie. I'm a beatnik." So it's a good. It, a
0: good question it's even worse than hippie in my mind to be honest with you not the actual movement of the thing but just the word that sounds like a rough word that sounds just like i don't know that just sounds aggressive that's like a needle to my ears for some reason maybe i heard my grandpa i think he said that at least once or twice he would call someone to be in a beatnik i don't know what that means but I, I was probably little at the time when i heard him say it but i don't know like that's just another term like saying the word hippie sounds offensive to me because I, I don't know, maybe like I said, maybe it's the culture of stuff, but I also know the propaganda the government used against the whole hippie movements as well, too, which has got to be interesting. I don't know if you mentioned that to anybody about the stuff that we know now through history about like fake magazines that were created that were just going against the hippie movement and demonizing them to the rest of society. I mean, being alive at that time and seeing these magazines, you're already thinking it now. the History has proven that you were right in thinking that that the government did do that. I would have to think you'd be like man what were their thoughts must have been going through their head you know being older and be like man they tried everything to stop us
1: (laughs) yeah it was crazy times i regret not living you know i I was born after the summer of love but i really regret not being there and witnessing it in my own eyes you know um for for the good and for the worse i mean there were very you know, violent clashes between the police and the hippies and and the new left. And the counterculture was bigger than the hippies, of course. But they did change the world. And wouldn't you like to be, you know, saying to yourself when you're older, well, I was one of those who really changed the world. And we changed for the best. Um, So that's something I, I really i'm really sorry i I can't say about my generation let's say
0: uh this is just one last question for you but did you mention to anybody about timothy leary out of all the number of people you interviewed i've heard different accounts from people who's either study history or were part of the counterculture that have varying views on that man and if you know him it was about taking lsd set and setting this whole entire mindset he was like a, a leading the charge of like giving people lsd and things of that sort so i don't know if you happened to ask anybody you interviewed about their thoughts on timothy leary he was like i didn't know about this person until diving into the counterculture and you cannot not see his name every single place you look in the whole counterculture and just the whole culture of the 60s and 70s yeah timothy leary had
1: a lot of impact on the hippie movement And he actually participated in in some of the big events and gave talks. And, you know, I I can't remember the name of the festival when he was, you know, giving a speech and then everyone took a tablet of acid and, you know, were partying together for for three days. (laughs) I mean, he he had an effect on everyone. And among the people I spoke to, I mean, it was like kind of where we started, you know, uh, they they did start with LSD, all of them, and and the community itself started with a group of people coming together and discussing their experiences with LSD and what can be you know learned from these experiences because they had similar experiences, but then it kind of grew and became more than a study group of of you know LSD experiences. Uh, when they moved to the farm they dropped LSD for natural drugs, okay? Only natural things could go in their body. So it could be either cannabis or um, mushrooms, mushrooms, yes. But as they grew older, they realized that mushrooms are too intense. (laughs) And sometimes you have to function, you know. And so many of them don't use mushrooms anymore, psilocybin. Or they use it very rarely, but the majority still smoke, um, you know, marijuana for in different um, occasions, some of them do it, you know, daily basis, some do it, you know, just with friends here and there. But what's interesting about them is that they moved from the original perception of dope as something that is spiritual, that expands your awareness to something that is more social and mainly has health benefits, okay, and all of them can quote so many studies about the health benefits of using cannabis, you know, it can be to your memory and it can be to your heart and skin and, and whatnot, so... They moved away from Timothy Leary, I think. I mean, they don't mention him anymore nowadays, but they, the culture of using dope is still there and it's still part of their daily life.
0: That's one impact I can really think about that has that I'm kind of grateful for because I'm not anti-pharma. I'm not anti-pharmaceutical drugs at all. But I also like that there's options out there. If someone wants to take a necessary vitamin or mineral or something like that, someone learns from a herb or something like that, that this might help. I, like I said, I don't, I haven't come across a lot of studies that really support it, but you can probably find anything to fit, you know, whatever you want to look up and whatever you want to support. But it's just interesting to me to see the culture of that. I have a couple of friends that have their hair all in dreads. They're older, like in their forties, fifties. And um, so like, they're like my friend's parents age and they just. They'd love the whole burning incense, which I hate, but I like the lifestyle and that there's options out there to really explore, you know, taking a supplement or try this. This will help with your back or this will help with your headaches. And like I'm glad that there's this culture out there that if someone wants to look up something, they can find an internet database where you can look at supplements and look at other derivatives than just taking a pharmaceutical drug. And like I said, I'm not against pharma, but I just like that there's that option out there. And I don't think we would really have that if there wasn't a whole hippie movement that kind of started looking into alternative forms of things. We would have went into just the direction of only pharmaceutical drugs, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, and it's true for so many things. It's true true for our nutrition. Look at how many people nowadays, you know, eat healthy and organic food. Um, I mean, being close to nature, exercising, being physically active. I mean, its it all came from the hippie movement. I mean, they did change the world, big time. And we should all be aware of that. <laughs>
0: Well, look, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show um, about a variety of things. I know I kind of just told you it was conversation, but I really did enjoy this very much. Um, And thank you so much for the work that you do as well, too. But is there a place where people can find your book and any other links you'd like to promote? I'll make sure to link like your academia stuff, um, all the profiles and all the research stuff you've done in this description of this video as well, too
1: thank you so much uh yeah and the book is available on amazon and cambridge university press and its name again is the aging of aquarius the hippies of the 60s in their 60s and beyond
0: well thank you so much for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast and stay tuned for our next episode